the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Handy Nitrogen. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Robert Emmons, who will discuss the science of gratitude. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Rocketron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Frank Lane. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty shaken, actually. Shaken? Not stirred? <laughs> You're not thankful? I guess that's that time of the year again, right? It is that time of the year. We give thanks for all that we have. Yes, indeed. I am quite thankful for all the science in the world. <laughs> if there weren't science, what would there be? I, the I have the courage to believe in evolution. I have the courage to believe in you, Frank. Thank you, Charles. And that's all I can say. <laughs> What are you planning to have for dinner tomorrow? Of course, in Bay Area, we go with the tofu turkey. It's a politically correct one, right? Well, I certainly... No, no Indians were killed in the process. <laughs> well, certainly no tofus were killed in the process. <laughs> Your taste buds might be. I'm right. not sure. <laughs> Completely unrelated. <laughs> okay. So we know that nitrogen N2 is actually an extremely stable molecule. In fact, one of the hardest ones to crack. Uh-huh. But... Of course, we need nitrogen in many agriculture and industrial applications, right. for example, as fertilizers and also as components for munitions. So the U.S. scientists have tried to come up with different ways of breaking up using different catalysts and you know, energy-intensive processes. One of these is the famous Haber-Bosch process, which was developed since the last World War. Mm-hmm. What some scientists at the University of Lyon have discovered recently was that they could carry this reaction out of breaking up the nitrogen into ammonia and converting it to ammonia using tantalum catalyst. And using just one metal that's sequestered on quartz or silicon, they were able to convert nitrogen and hydrogen gas into ammonium gas by passing over it. Wow, okay. So is this tantalum really easy to obtain? It's probably one of the more rare metals out there, but all you need is the surface of it to carry it out. And the nice thing about this reaction is that it can be done with one metal center, whereas you know previous reactions relied on several different metals right. and exotic ligands that were pretty hard to synthesize in the first place. Yeah. I mean, haven't they been using nitrogen-fixing bacteria for some of this as well? Right. But now they have a synthetic way to do it directly. Yeah, well, there you just, go. Uh, Why use biology when chemistry has all the answers? <laughs> Uh, Anyways, this is a really cool article, and it was in Science, Volume 317. Frank, how do you communicate? Usually some body language, both effective, I guess. (laughs) Right, well, depends what kind of body language and what parts of your body. (laughs) At least I'm not threatening. Well, that's good. Chimpanzees, however... uh obviously communicate very well also with their voices, Uh but hand gestures are even more important in their uh, communication to tell other chimpanzees what they're thinking. So what does it mean when they pump their hands? (laughs) But this actually has some implications for how language evolved in humans. Hmm. And a lot of researchers have thought that language developed from the vocal calls that these chimpanzees had been using. Right. And they actually suggest now that the broader hand gestures that chimpanzees have are a more likely source of the evolution of language in humans mm-hmm. than the vocalizations that you find in chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was research done by Franz Duval at, at the Yerkes National Primate Center in Atlanta, Georgia. 
they classified all these different hand signals, show that it's very complex and robust. Right. Compared it to some newborns who actually have similar hand gestures and show that the development of language probably first arose from the hands and then moved into the vocal gestures as well. Maybe some of our own human hand gestures evolved from these instincts that the chimpanzees had earlier developed. That's what they're suggesting. And uh, the parts of the brain that are presumably involved in that just were usurped by the vocal centers uh-huh. for language. Yeah. So do they say yatta? <laughs> <laughs> so this is very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of our very favorite journal. Oh, the Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. Penis. PNAS. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. We'll come up in just a few minutes. Professor Robert Emmons will join us to discuss the science of gratitude. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, gratitude, as they say, is often in short supply, but learning to be grateful may also increase one's emotional well-being, perhaps even leading to a happier existence. Why is gratitude so important? Our guest today, Professor Robert Emmons, has been investigating the psychology of gratitude as a professor of psychology at UC Davis. He is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Positive Psychology and author of numerous research articles and popular books on the subject of gratitude, the latest of which, Thanks, How the New Science of Gratitude Can Make You Happier, has just been released. Professor Emmons, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is a, really a very fascinating book. And, you know, I'm sure most people sort of have an intuitive understanding of what gratitude is, but how do we actually go about uh, investigating this scientifically? Well, that's a great question. You know, for centuries, uh, there's been speculation that gratitude is good for you. It's good for health. It's good for people. It's good for society. And as a scientist, as a psychologist, I was interested in putting some of those assumptions uh, to the test. So we began very simply, simply by doing experiments, by asking people to keep journals of what they're grateful or thankful for. Now, I tend to think of gratitude as, as a fairly complex attitude that involves being aware of goodness in one's life, giving credit to others, seeing the sources of this goodness outside the self. In our experiments, we didn't go quite so deep. We simply asked people to keep records, journals, diaries, what they're grateful for, and and to see if that had an effect on their outlook on life over a period of time. And uh, how did keeping these journals actually affect their outlook on life? Well, it was very interesting. We compared them to a group who were doing an opposite exercise, and that was keeping a record of what was going wrong in their lives. We call this the whining and complaining group, and and many of us have a lot of familiarity with that in our own personal lives. And, And what we found was that after a period of approximately three weeks, the people keeping gratitude journals were so much higher than the ones in the hassles group and on almost every dimension of well-being that we measured in terms of their level of optimism, their level of vitality or energy, their level of enthusiasm for life, their ability to cope with stress. On almost every indicator we examined, people in the keeping gratitude journals far exceeded those in the other comparison conditions, uh, suggesting to us there's a, there's a power in gratitude. Hmm, that's very fascinating. Do they also uh, manifest any kind of uh, physiological changes as well? 
Well, we did find some other benefits in the physical realm. That is, the ones who were keeping gratitude journals, they reported better sleep. They slept more per night on average, about a half hour more per night. They woke up, they felt more refreshed. They even exercised more. We were shocked by that finding. We were just uh, astounded that you could randomly assign people to keep in gratitude journal, and they would actually spend an hour and a half more per week exercising compared to people not keeping these journals. So we thought that was a pretty remarkable effect. So what do people typically put in these gratitude journals, and did you actually direct them as far as what they should be sort of paying attention to? No, actually, it was very, very open-ended. We, we, we let it up to each individual to focus on that which they wanted to, and so a wide variety, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different sorts of gratitudes that people listed from the sorts of things you'd expect, their health, their family, their friends, to very specific things. Some people list material blessings like their homes. Some would talk about seeing beautiful sunset or being out in nature. Others talked about bad things not happening to them. I was thankful that, that it didn't rain today, for instance. You know, there's, there's a resiliency to gratitude that there's so many different things a person could list. It, it's not limited just to a couple of domains of life. One of the surprising findings, I guess it's not too surprising that people would be more positive and beat and so forth, and they're focusing on their blessings. It'd be a scoop if they weren't, right? But what really surprised us was in terms of social relationships. When, when people were keeping gratitude journals, they reported feeling closer and more connected to others, felt less lonely, less isolated. And we know when it comes to health and well-being that the nature of a person's relationships is vital. Um, there's no well-being without having close, warm, intimate, reciprocal relationships. And, and for that reason, gratitude is really the relationship-strengthening emotion. If you want to feel closer and connected to others, keep a gratitude journal. It works. Uh, this area of inquiry is sort of new to science. Philosophically, this has been uh, addressed for quite some time. That's correct. It's been largely ignored, neglected by social scientists. Perhaps they just dismissed it as gratitude is the saying thanks and it's a nice part of social interaction. It's a good habit or good practice, but there's really not much more beyond that. And we find there is actually much more beyond that. It's a much deeper sentiment. It's really an, an entire approach to life. It's an orientation. It's an attitude. And it's not just a feeling of saying thanks when you've received a present. Nor is it, uh, you also mentioned there's a distinction between uh, gratitude and indebtedness. Yes. So indebtedness typically has a unpleasant connotation to it, you know, and we don't like to feel indebted to someone who, let's say, someone loans us money. Um, there might be some feeling of gratitude because they've helped us out, but there's, a, there's an uncomfortable sense until we reciprocate, until we address that imbalance that we pay the person back, we're experiencing a negative, unpleasant psychological state. Whereas with gratitude, it's much more pleasant. If you ask people what sort of feelings are associated with being grateful, they'll say positive things, that it feels good, it's, it's joyful, it's happy, there's contentment there. It's not a sense of uneasiness or uncomfortableness that you get with the feeling of indebtedness. Are there other methods that people can do to prove their gratitude? <laughs> Absolutely. In my book, I describe 10 steps or prescriptions for becoming more thankful. It's an entire chapter. There's a wide variety of different techniques. Now, different people find different techniques effective. One of the ones, let me just mention one, has to do with using particular words and language. I call this watching your language. So grateful people have a particular style that they use and, and can hear this in a person. When you talk to a person or you hear an interview of someone who is very grateful, they'll talk about themselves as being blessed, as being fortunate, as receiving gifts. 
and so forth, and they're not focused on what they don't have or on deprivation or on disappointments or discontent. So watching one's language, using words, we, we talk to ourselves all day long. We have this interior dialogue going on, and grateful people use language in such a way that I think really increases their awareness of what they're grateful for. Do you think that people are more or less grateful now than they were perhaps in the past? Well, that's a difficult question. It's certainly difficult to be grateful. There's so many factors that work against it in terms of messages that we hear that we don't have enough, that we need to keep striving for more and more, that life is incomplete until every possible physical and material need is satisfied. And even then, there's more and more that we have to do. So, yeah, there's strong tendencies that work against gratitude. Now, we've, we've often had those and perhaps have always had those in the past, but I do think it's a challenge and why it requires such hard work, why being grateful is a, is a discipline. It doesn't come easily or naturally to people. If, if one were to take, for example, an evolutionary perspective, one might think then that being perhaps overly grateful might lead to some sort of complacency in this evolutionary selective. Yeah, that. I mean, that's a, that's a popular yeah. assumption, right, that you could be too grateful. And uh, I don't know, I haven't found anyone of the hundreds of people I study <laughs> that would qualify as being too grateful. But typically, a, you know, a virtue like gratitude requires it's being expressed appropriately, right, in appropriate conditions, appropriate situations. And I guess it could make you too complacent or too unwilling to change the status quo in a situation that needs to be changed. But uh, in fact, we find that the more grateful a person is, the more passion they have, the more enthusiasm, the more energy, the more likely they go out there and achieve their goals. So it does seem to drive behavior in a positive direction. Hmm. Uh, how do you see this gratefulness then interacting with other personality uh, traits that lead to happiness? Yeah, so I think there's a whole cluster of characteristics that seem to go together in a, call it a happy personality, have positive relationships, for example, the ability to give and take in a close, intimate relationship, and, and clearly gratefulness and related feelings like appreciation, so forth, are important parts to it. There's a sense of self-worth, so you have to feel good about yourself. I don't mean you walk around saying, I'm a great person, I'm a good person, that sort of mantra. Just a sense that one has a realistic perspective of one's strengths as well as one's weaknesses. We might call this humility. And that goes along with feeling grateful. And then there's a sense of compassion or altruism, a desire to reciprocate favors received that happy people are characterized by as well as grateful individuals. Uh, do you think some people have a greater propensity naturally to be more grateful than, than others? Well, we know certain people have a greater propensity to be happier than others, and conversely, some people have a greater propensity to be unhappier given the genetic lottery that occurs uh, at birth, that there's what's known as the set point for happiness. And so some people by disposition, by nature, find it easier to be happy. Some people find it more difficult. And my sense is that is also true with gratitude. Now, they haven't done the sorts of studies yet to look at the genetics of gratitude as has been done, let's say, with happiness. But my guess is that similar pattern will emerge, that there is a set inherited range that makes it a challenge, right? For some people, if they're born with a low level of positive emotions like gratitude or happiness, it takes more work. It takes a little bit more effort to raise that set point, but I think it can be done. Hmm. 
So uh, is that saying that there's sort of a maximum range that each person can have in terms of the level of happiness that they uh, are able to achieve? Maximum range, and it's probably desirable, right, to have an optimal range like you suggested. You know, you might not want to be too grateful or too happy or too optimistic, right, because if so, you wouldn't do the necessary work needed in various aspects of life to make sure that you're checking, making sure everything is going the way it should. For instance, if I'm overly optimistic about my health, I would never go to the doctor, right? I would never take medicine. I would eat whatever I want because I would believe I would never get sick. Hmm. Do you think you yourself are very grateful? Well, I work at it. You know, I'm certainly painfully aware when I'm not grateful. Uh, if you ask my wife, she would say no. <laughs> she, she says to me, how can you study gratitude? You're the, you're the least grateful person I know. And I think she probably exaggerates a little bit, but as a psychologist, we tend to study what we're bad at, but we want to get better at. So I have friends who study memory because they're very forgetful, for example. And I was always someone who took things for granted, always trying to achieve something better you know, not satisfied with what I had, and, and, and that drove me. And, and so the last 10 years, I think, has been a very personal journey studying gratitude and trying to develop more gratefulness in my life. Mm. So, so what direction is your uh, research heading now? Well, we want to learn more about how to become grateful, how to really sustain changes in one's level of gratitude and also happiness. You know, we know that it works at least for the short term. We can make people happy. We can raise that bar of their happiness experience at least for a few months. But how long can you sustain this? Can it, can it really present a lifelong change? You know, what sort of intervention is needed so that a person develops more of a grateful disposition and orientation toward life, not just feeling more grateful, but really approaching life as a manner of being grateful as an orientation and so we need to do a lot more work trying to understand what really is able to maintain this outlook on life that for easy for some people difficult for others mm. um, so I, I realize this is uh, obviously a very a psychological approach but I'm curious are there pharmacological approaches that people are taking uh, in terms of trying to address these issues well, we know that pharmacological treatments, of course, work with people who have very low levels of happiness in the sense of uh, depression that can be very effective. But, you know, a lot of the pharmacological treatments are very good at dealing with symptoms. And the work that I do fits within this movement of psychology over the past 10 years known as positive psychology, which is trying to address what's good about life, or what's working, what's functioning well. You know, negative psychology treats symptoms, depression, dysfunction, disease using a medical model. What positive psychology tries to do is build strengths, build an optimal functioning, focus on the best things in life as an antidote to a really a preoccupation with, with disease, dysfunction, depression, negative psychology. Maybe if you have some final recommendations then for people to help increase the gratitude in their life. Yeah, you know, I think it really starts with just an awareness that gratitude is vital to life. Some writers have called it the secret to life. There's certainly the secret to happiness. I like to use an acronym, and the acronym is AIM, that we need to take AIM at gratitude, where AIM, the A stands for attention, just noticing blessings, seeing life as blessings rather than curses or complaints. The I stands for interpretation, so we interpret things happening to us as gifts, as potential opportunities or gains. And then the M stands for memory. We remember the various benefits and favors that other people have provided for us. And this way helps us, I think, take aim and really focus on what gratitude is. And then we experience all of its benefits. 
So really just pay attention to the things that are uh, good in your life, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. I certainly hope people will uh, take a look at uh, your new book, which is Thanks, How the New Science of Gratitude Can Make You Happier. Uh, Professor Emmons, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And you were just listening to Professor Robert Emmons discussing the science of gratitude. This is the Berkman Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down a road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. I'm not ashamed to say. I hope it always will stay this way. My hat is off. Won't you stand up and take a Rocketron 5000. It is our supercomputer that was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Rocketron 5000 has chosen the topic grateful or thankless. And it would like to know for the following five people, do you think they're grateful or thankless? And maybe a little reason why. Professor Evans, you ready to play our game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Grateful or thankless, person number one, Apple founder Steve Jobs. I would say grateful. The opportunity to impact so many lives through technology. Indeed. Well, I, I certainly see the iPods everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Number two is conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh seems to me to be a bit on the ungrateful side. Tends to fit into, I think, the whining, complaining group that we study. Well, he certainly does <laughs> do that vocally. <laughs> Number three is uh, the famed humanitarian Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer. So he's right up there, probably the top of the list of grateful people. In fact, he himself said that gratitude was the secret to life. So I'd, I'd put him at the very top of the heap. Certainly uh, somebody to emulate. It. Exactly. Uh, number four, Chuck Norris. I don't know too much about his personality, uh, but I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. I'd say he's grateful. He seemed to me a pretty passionate, purposeful joyful individual, energetic, vitality, you know, all those characteristics that seem to go along with gratefulness. Yeah, he certainly exudes it on screen anyway. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and finally, number five, President of the United States, George Bush. That's a tough one, you know. One thing that I think gets the president in trouble is that he may expect too much gratitude from people. Mm -hmm. And I think that is always a dangerous position because when you, you know, feeling grateful is great and terrific and expressing it is good. But when you expect it from others, whether it's foreign countries, whether it's your own children, your spouse, you know, we cannot control the behavior of others. So that gets us into trouble. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to vote on whether I think he's grateful or ungrateful, but I do think it's problematic when you express gratitude from others. <laughs> I think he'd be grateful when his term is over. <laughs> I think a lot of other people would be, too, as well. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Professor Emmons, uh, I do want to thank you very much, again, for um, sticking around playing your game. 
And, of course, talking about your new book, Thanks, How the New Science of Gratitude Can Make You Happier. It's been great fun. Thanks for having me on. And Forrest here with the answer to last week's question of the week. What's the PCBs that get in the rivers that pollute the ocean? And these are the polychlorobiphenols. Nasty stuff. Indeed. Genetics. Nasty stuff. What does UV cross-linking do to the power of the genes? If you know or think you know, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you just might be highly evolved. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.